Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. This episode is brought to you by Ride On Optics. They make fantastic, fantastic equipment, and then they also have the Ride On Revolution on their website, which is a huge educational platform. Honestly, everything over at Ride On is super cool, and we're excited to have them as a sponsor. So go to rideonoptics.com and check them out. That's R-I-T-O-N-Optics.com. If you guys want to be a part of the Nomad Strength Tribe membership, this is an awesome community that we are building and it's growing all the time and there's tons of exclusive content happening over there. You go to tribe.nomad-strength.com. We've got exclusive calls, exclusive content, articles, videos, uh, behind the scenes things for the podcast, coaching opportunities, all kinds of stuff that are happening over there. And it's really becoming a special thing as far as a community goes. So go to tribe.nomad-strength.com and check it out. It's only 15 bucks a month and you get a free week trial if you go sign up on tribe.nomad-strength.com. Hope to see you in there. What is up everybody? Happy New Year. We are here with the first episode of 2022, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, and we're kicking it off the right way. We are bringing an episode to you today with a guy that really has made a huge impact in the hunting, cooking, outdoor kind of world uh, for a long time now, but really exponentially in the last year, year and a half. Uh, Andy Mokel, also known as the flip-flop guy. He does the flip-flop method of cooking. And I'm telling you right now, it's one of the most fun, but also freaking just delicious ways of eating venison I've ever had in my life. I was able to uh, enjoy observing the the master at work at Summer Strong last May and just went to town on an elk leg and it was some of the best game meat I've ever had in my life and it was just so fun watching him. So we really get into the the whole tradition and methodology around it because it is a tradition that's been passed down for three generations now uh, to Andy. And he has a really cool story about why it's so important to him that he does it the way that he does it. And he's got the marinade sauce. That's the recipe of his grandfather that was handed down on a card to him. And uh, it's just such a cool story of taking a dream and knowing that it's something that means a lot to you and turning it into something awesome that other people can enjoy and spread and share. So he has a lot of really great information, a lot of great, uh, a lot of great storytelling, and he's a super awesome guy. I recommend you go follow him at the flip flop guy and, uh, just check him out. And if you can get anywhere close to where he is doing a cook, if he, if he's doing one near you and it's at a public one, or if you follow him and want to learn how to do it yourself, follow all of the Instagrams and learn how to do it. He tells us exactly how to do the flip-flop method here in this episode. So take your notes. So you, next time you get uh, a deer or an elk or any kind of other game animal that you want to try this with, 
you know exactly how to do it. So enjoy this episode with Andy, the flip-flop guy. All right, everybody. We are at the Nomad Strength Show. I'm with the flip-flop guy himself, (laughs) Andy Mogul. What's going on, dude? Thanks for hopping on. Yeah, you bet, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm pumped. We've been kind of going back and forth for a while, and both of us with just travel and all the things that you're doing right now, it's like we finally like had this one window, and I literally texted you like yesterday. I'm like, do you have this window available? And you're like, yeah. We're like, let's do it. Yeah. And it was an iffy window, wasn't it? And it was an iffy window. (laughs) You told me, you're like, I may be available, but let's plan on it. (laughs) So I'm I'm pumped we had it done, man. I'm I'm glad to have you because I went to – so I was at Summer Strong last year, which was my first, uh, my first experience down in South Carolina with all the guys at Sorenex and everybody. Yeah. Sorenex events are epic. They're awesome, man. And we were just talking about winter strong coming up here in about a month or so. And we're both going to be there. And, uh, it's, it was my first like real flip-flop experience. Right. And so I was like, you get it done from the master himself. Like that's a, a pretty good way to start it. So um, I appreciate that. What do you was, think of that elk meet? Dude, it was awesome. I loved yeah. it. It was uh it's such a cool and and I'm really, you know, I've heard I've heard a little bit about the story wow. of the system and the sauce and all of that stuff, but I mean it's just such a cool tradition based thing. Yeah. And so I mean like it, it's one of those things where when you're a part of that environment of like the actual event, cause it is, it's like an event, you know? Yeah. And uh, like, it's an event within an event. Like we were there for summer strong, but the, but that night when you were doing that, like that's its own little event. And so it, you can really feel like the tradition as a part of it, which is cool. And so um, like, let's just start there, I guess, like explain what it is. Like I keep saying flip-flop and I imagine 70% of people don't even know what I'm talking about yet. So just like, give me the rundown. So uh, um, it's so funny because I tell the story so often. So basically what you're doing is you're taking the entire back leg of an animal of, Mm. of usually an animal that doesn't carry trigonosis, which we're actually going to try with a mountain lion leg coming up here pretty quick with Peterson's hunting magazine and uh, see if we all don't die. I mean, not literally die, but get sick for a pretty miserable experience. Yeah. Get, get a pretty miserable experience for about a year. Um, Which I think we've figured out a way to, to get around it anyways. So you take a a deer an elk an antelope, a sheep, you know, uh, bighorn, thinhorn, doesn't really matter as long as it doesn't carry trigonosis. You cut that whole leg off and you kind of fillet it right around the ball joint, mm-hmm. right? So you have the whole entire leg and marinate the top side. You'll you'll go through, you'll cut off all the silver skin, mm-hmm. you know, the top eighth or something like that of meat on both sides. Um, marinate it. And I use a rosemary brush. Mm-hmm. And the rosemary brush to me is part of the magic of the process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can use a mop, you can use whatever you want. I prefer a rosemary brush. Uh, I think that it adds a lot of flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so mop the sauce on, salt and pepper it, throw that face down over charcoal grill. And you can use any charcoal grill. You can use a $24.99 charcoal grill from Walmart. You could use a Weber. You could use any grill that's out there on the market that gets hot, that has good airflow. Um, I've cooked on almost every grill across the board for yeah, this with charcoal. Um, I prefer charcoal. It gets the hottest from what I've found. And what, I mean, um, like it needs to be like stupid hot, right? Like what's the temperature you're looking for, for that? I mean, usually I'd say it's, uh, it's upwards of a thousand plus. Yeah. Yeah. So it's screaming. Yep. Uh, you take that leg, throw that side face down, and then you have a whole new side, marinate that, salt and pepper it. Mm-hmm. And then once you're done, you'll flip it over. And that other side's already cooked in about a minute. Okay. And then you just start slicing off quarter inch thick steaks and feeding everybody uh, straight off the bone. As it's happening. Yeah, as it's happening. A minute later, you're flipping it back and you're just repeating that same process till there's nothing left on the thing whatsoever. 
Yeah, until there's no meat left on that bone. And, and so when you cut off all the quarter inch thick steaks, you're back to an entirely raw piece of meat. Mm-hmm. So you remarinate it yep. and then flip it and then slice again and then remarinate it, salt and pepper it, flop it, slice mm-hmm. again and keep going all the way down. It's such a cool way to do it, too, because it gets, you know, A, it gets that really awesome sear when you've got yeah. it that hot. So you're getting like the good like bark almost on the outside with it still not being overdone on the part that you slice off. But then outside of the actual taste of it, which is amazing, like it just gets everybody that's around involved in it, which is cool. Yeah. Like like you're literally when we were doing the one at Summerstrong, you're doing the elk. And that one was I mean, with how how massive those elk legs were like it took you and Casey flipping it together each time you needed to do it just to save. Well, we were flipping two elk legs at one time. He's working one side (laughs) of the grill. I'm working the other side of the grill. Yeah. And I think collectively we were cooking 103 or 104 pounds of elk. Well, and it was like four hours. I mean, like you guys were nonstop the whole night, basically. Yeah, it was like it was like two and a half, I think. Oh man, it sure seemed like a long time. And so, yeah. but I mean, like when oh, yeah. you're just doing that that whole time, but it just gets everybody involved in the whole process. I mean, because like you're doing it, like you're just picking it off and basically like either handing it, put it on a plate. Sometimes you're just like tossing it to people. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's just such Here you a, go. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people are just like hanging out. They're like, I want the next one. I want the next one. And so it's such a cool thing. So I, um, I want to hear about the sauce too, because all of the, did all this whole thing came from generations ago. Yeah. Correct. Third generation. So take us back in history a bit with where it kind of all started. So it all started with my grandfather. My grandfather was a California fishing game warden. And he'd go check out the sheep farmers or uh, sheep herders and everybody in West Marin County, California, uh, West Sonoma County, and look and see what all these people were doing, you know. And, and there was one ranch, Portuguese family, and, and they would take a lamb leg and they would cook it and they would share it with all their friends and everything like that. So my grandfather saw this and was like, oh my God, I have to do this with a leg of venison. Mm. There's absolutely no way that I can't not try this with a leg of venison. So him and my grandmother started doing it and they concocted the sauce, which is now the recipe that I've taken to market and I'm selling on the website. Um, And literally that recipe card was handed down from my grandfather to my grandmother, to my dad, to me. And this is my mom's father. This is my mom's father and mother. Okay. Um, So they were handed down to my dad. And then my dad handed it down, handed the knife and the card down to me, I think on my 24th or 25th birthday. And then he was like, cool. Well now you get to cook and I get to watch. (laughs) That's awesome. So, I mean, so you have memories of it being a thing, like even through childhood and stuff. Yeah. My entire life. I mean, my uncle's wedding, I think we did seven deer legs and an elk leg, um, you know, parties, any, anything Mm -hmm. that I can remember growing up, that was exactly what we did and how we did it. So were you the first one to like think to turn it, and go business model with it? Or was that ever a thought in any of the previous generations no, that were was, doing it? It was never really a thought. And for me, it wasn't really a thought until, uh, sorry, my phone is just going fucking bananas. <laughs> um, it was never really a thought until I started doing it publicly for hunting industry brands. Okay. Uh, outside of our immediate family circle and and people who'd been doing it. Yeah. And it was mind-blowing the experience that these lifelong hunters were having and a new way to cook wild game and prepare wild game, not only to help them save on processing meat, Mm -hmm. but also to provide an experience that goes so much further than a pound of ground chuck or you know, some steaks or something like that. You know what I mean? You're, you're actually providing an event and sharing it with everybody. And I was watching all this unfold and speaking with a buddy of mine and he was like, there's something to this. And 
you know, we need to figure this out. And I started looking into it. And that was when I started mixing five-gallon buckets of sauce in my garage <laughs> one at a time. And people would show up to my house and they would, you know, if I wasn't home, there was a little box behind my front my front gate. Yeah. And they'd show up and they'd grab a bottle of sauce and throw 20 in there. And... <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, yeah. It was pretty wild. It was pretty <laughs> wild, the evolution of the whole product. <laughs> And it's been oh. pretty quick. I mean, I mean, it has been. It I looks mean, it's it's it looks and, I, and I and I knew that because it's not like it's a, you hear like the overnight thing that's actually twenty years in the making, right? So it's not yeah. like it happened overnight, so, but but it happened. It's happened exponentially recently. Like the yeah. like the growth from where the first time I remember seeing it a year or so ago, or a little bit over from then until now, like that growth has been crazy exponential it seems yeah yeah um so i started cooking 12 years ago doing this mm -hmm. um and i mean feeding vegans vegetarians you know liberals everybody mm -hmm. and everybody would love it and everybody would fall in love with the process the flavor the deliciousness you know anti-hunting or hunting yeah you know alike doesn't matter and so in, in that, in that whole process and, you know, I guess the overnight success, which I, I really have to chalk a lot of that up to, um, companies like Yeti mm -hmm. and companies like Kuyu, um, <laughs> Kuyu and, and also Deadeye Outfitters. Mm -hmm. Those were the first three companies that embraced this cooking method. Mm -hmm. And we're we're okay with being like, dude. Everybody needs to check this out. This is the wildest shit we've ever seen. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I I remember the first time I was introduced to the folks at Yeti, and this is you know now we're going back three or four years. Um, they were blown away by it, and they were instantly like, "We need to have you come cook at our events. Like, come to our private ambassador parties that we're doing for the people in the hunting industry." You know, please come cook this, share this, you know, this is amazing. Um, same, same with, uh, Brendan Burns and Jason Harrison from, from Kuyu, yeah. just completely embracing it and, and being comfortable with it. Um, and, uh, that's kind of what propelled the, the birth of yeah. it becoming a serious yeah. legitimate opportunity of something that I could do, um, you know, and, and taking the product to market, there was a lot of different things that went into place from like the five gallon buckets and just doing, you know, bathtub gin style mix and shit <laughs> right. to actually having a professional kitchen and, yeah. and a professional product. Um, and I had to sit down with my mom and my dad and two other, another couple, which are best friends of my parents. And they were also best friends of my grandparents Okay, and have a serious discussion with them about, is this legitimate? Like, is this something that, that grandma and grandpa would approve? Would they be okay with this or would That's they awesome. want this to stay in the family? Sure. And everybody unanimously was like, they would be so proud of what you're doing. That's awesome. You know, reach for the stars, which is what I've done, you know, and, and, yeah. and you've seen it in the last year since your exposure to it. Um, you know, but for me, a lot of it really is, is based in my grandfather's memory and, and my grandfather's legacy. I'm, I'm lucky I was born into it and I get to carry the torch, you yeah. know, like, yeah. um, sure. what's been really funny and interesting lately is a lot of people that have been doing it on their, on their own have been calling me after they do it. And they're like, dude, I don't know how you're doing 50 or 60 of these <laughs> a year. Like doing one was difficult in itself, yeah. you know, and you'll sit there and do five in a row on one fire pit. Like that's crazy, man. Yeah. They, a lot. it's, I guess I make it look easy because I've been doing it for so long. Yeah. I mean, that's like everything though. You look at the guys that are the best yeah. at it and you're like, Oh, I, that's a piece of cake. I can do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's like watching someone bugling an elk, right? They're, they're like, so, you know, you look at like, uh, 
Elk 101 or or any of these guys that are doing serious elk hunting, yep. and yep. they're out there killing they're killing good bulls every year, and they're bugling them in and archery yep. season and everything, and they make it look easy in their videos. And then a, a, a new guy goes out to do it. And it's like one of the most <laughs> difficult and challenging things in the fucking world. Right. And like, how is this even possible? So, uh, you know, no. that's, that's uh, I'll put it in that same sort of realm where totally it's, though. I look, I make it look easy, but it's, it's a lot more difficult than it is. No, I totally believe that. Uh, and so, you know, you said you, it was like 12 years, you said, since you started doing the cooking was yep. this, I mean, where were you prior? I mean, like, was this something that you thought you wanted to do Never at all? So this, what- this, so I remember sitting and this is back. I was a warehouse manager mm-hmm. and a, and a brand manager and product manager, product development and all that kind of stuff for a textile company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had an expert eye for color and creating new colors and, learning and figuring out and understanding how to manipulate colors into, mm-hmm. you know, you have a red, but the red needs to be more blue in order to hit mm-hmm. this level. And, um, uh, without getting into too much of it, you know, sure. that was kind of what I was doing. And I'd sit on the phone with a good buddy of mine every morning before shop would open up and, you know, he, and I'd, I mean, I wasn't miserable at that job until my last maybe two years, but like, okay. Um, I was lacking something, you know, there was, there was just, it was, it wasn't all there. And, uh, so what ended up happening was my, my buddy would always be like, you need to figure out something that you're passionate about, whether it's opening a gun store or cause I was manufacturing, uh, through 80 percenter kits, parts kits, okay. ARs, yeah. AKs, 1919s, and, you know, building building guns with my buddies and all that kind of stuff. Everything was legit. Everything yep. was on the up and up until they said that we couldn't do it anymore. Um, and this just kind of blossomed within itself hmm. and started becoming a reality. And then that reality really became real when the manufacturer, the, the place that I have bottling and packaging the sauce, when they were actually able to nail it on the head. And that, that was a three, I want to say it was a, is a two and a half to three year process to get the recipe, right? Wow. Um, from the five gallon buckets I was doing to what they were doing. Right. And what it actually ended up coming down to was every single bottle of sauce that we sell is hand filled, hand mixed one at a time by an individual person, which sucks because it's labor costly and intensive. Um, but that's how much of a fanatic I am about the quality of the product. Yeah, You know, I, I'm not about trying to put out some bullshit product that no one likes, no one wants. Mm-hmm. You know, none of that stuff. So, well, and that's, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I think that are, that are even mutual friends, uh, with us, like guys like Casey and yeah. Josh Smith that all, you know, like they're, they're in this world where their product is like, it means so much to them that like, oh, yeah. it has to be the vision. Like, I mean, you can't just turn it over to, to somebody who says they want to handle it for you and be like, yeah, just do your thing or whatever, just cause it's going to make it easier for you. Or there's a chance on the back end of making a lot of money from it cause they can yeah. crank out tons of numbers. Right. I mean like yeah, being able, yeah, being able to have the, the control of it, but also just because you care about it. And it's not just like w- not wanting to relinquish control. It's like, no, I actually just really care about this. I want to make sure it's right. Well, you know? and, And a lot of that for me too boils down to this isn't, you know, this isn't just some like spur of the moment company. This is three generations of family. Yeah. Um, And, and really preserving Mm -hmm. my grandfather and what he started and what he has done and getting to be able to pass that along to hunters across the entire nation. Yeah. Um, I was on the phone with uh, Bert the other day Mm -hmm. 
And Bert was talking to me about Mr. Wesley, and you'll you'll meet Mr. Wesley at uh, at Winterstrong. Uh, and Bert's getting phone calls from Mr. Wesley about Mr. Wesley stacking up six legs, eight legs, more legs, more legs, like. <laughs> And and Mr. Wesley is, is, in my opinion, is is a legendary hunter in the South and a whitetail expert in God. And to think that what I'm doing and and what my family has been doing for over sixty years has translated into changing what he's doing in the field. That's cool. You know, or or getting phone calls from guys that are out on their hunts with their family members. And unanimously, when they kill an animal, everybody is like, we're saving a leg to do a flip-flop. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I mean, I can't even count. I can't even count the amount of people that are doing this and calling me and like, oh, cool, man. you know what I mean? Like Remy Warren, which Remy Warren, as far yeah. as Western hunting is concerned, dude, that dude is one of the most legendary hunters in yeah. the Western hunting world right now, as far as celebrity and everything yeah. like that. He is 100% legit, 100% authentic. And he is out there crushing it and killing it and doing a great job. And I had the opportunity to cook for him. And then I'm seeing on his social media, he's using rosemary mops now when he's cooking his his deer steaks. And now, you know, listening to his podcast, uh, Cutting the Distance, and hearing about how he is now doing flip-flops with the people that he hunts with and his clients and all this stuff that's like mind-blowing to me, you know, (laughs) like that – that is insanity. Yeah. You know, we're looking at Josh. Josh did the veterans project that they yep. did over the summer in August. Um, and he's out there and, and the way they kicked off their event was doing two deer legs for everybody that showed up and listening to Josh share the experience and the camaraderie that it brought into that camp and that group of people who didn't know each other mm-hmm. and how it, literally it broke the ice instantly for them. And, and what it brought to their atmosphere and environment. Like it, I, I, for me, I still don't know how to process all of it. Right. It's completely overwhelming. It's actually, it's, it's been insanity. So as far as uh, like the growth of everything itself, I mean, you, you have with, with the sauce stuff, you said you've, you've got like your, your place that does the bottling and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how much are you wanting it? I mean, like, cause there's going to be some level where those kind of things, you got to be like, I got to stop it right here. Otherwise I'm going to begin to relinquish some of the stuff that I want. Right. Yeah. Like, w- like, do you have kind of that line for yourself on how big you want it to get? Or like, is that even a conversation you're even thinking about yet? Um, I mean, my goal is to have flip flops in every backyard across America. And, and, and the reason for that being, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, it took, a year, year and a half of conversation between myself and mm-hmm. Jake, the owner of Maui Nui Venison. And uh, we came up with a deal that works for both of us. And I am the sole and exclusive distributor and provider of 100% USDA approved authentic wild game access deer legs. That's so I can, I sell Maui Nui Venison access deer legs on my website which now gives me the ability. You don't have to be a hunter yeah. in order to do your own flip flop. Yeah. You don't have to be a hunter to provide legs, to provide cooking a leg for 30 of your friends. Right. And my backhanded goal with that is that now we have people from all across America that can try doing their own flip flops. They can fall in love with the process. They can fall in love with eating wild game and maybe they've never hunted in their life. But now that they've tried it, mm-hmm. they want to know what it's like to go out there and kill their own animal and take that leg and bring that leg back to their family and friends and share their story and their experience of their hunt yeah. while they're feeding 30 or 40 of their friends. I'll tell you what, that was one of the coolest things about uh, the deal at Summerstrong too, uh, because Summerstrong is not, you know, like like Winterstrong, the whole deal is it's, it's in the outdoors. Outdoor in industry. That, you know, so there are a lot of guys that are like, that's what. That's what we everybody does. And Summer Strong, it's, you know, strength conditioning guys. Like it's gym rats, it's strength coaches, they're college guys, a lot of them, you know. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many of them I watched that like I'm, they're watching me eat it or like a couple of the other guys I'm standing next to are like, 
I've literally never had a piece of wild game in my life. Like, is it good? I'm like, just go grab a slice. And then like, they come grab a slice and they bring it back and their jaws are like dropped. Like, this is freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then they're like, just hovering around the, the grill, like the pit the whole rest of the night. Cause they like, there's like wanting it more and more and more. And I'm like, that's such a cool way to, to get people who have maybe even if it's not voluntary, right? Like maybe somebody's just never had an environment where they could go get wild game. You know, maybe it's not somebody who's a non-hunter and anti-hunter for any reason, but like people who just it's haven't ever had the chance. Yeah. Exactly. And so like, that's like doing it in the final, like the final step of the process rather than the very first step of the process, yeah. I think is a very, it's a much easier way to get somebody into that, into that world and begin those conversations, which is super cool because then like you get to see everybody's faces just light up and they're like, this is freaking delicious. Like, why haven't I known about this in my whole life? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's so awesome. So it was like, yeah, I just remember those, all those guys, like these big, huge, like college football player, college coach guys, just huge burly men. I'm like, can you imagine how much, I mean, like other than the fact that this is like the healthiest meat on the planet, like you guys should be consuming this anyways, just tastes freaking delicious. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, totally. it's so awesome. Um, and so with the, I mean, as far as the cooking stuff, do you have, because this is a process that's been handed down, you know, for, for three generations now, when you decided to take this and make it your thing, was there any other types of cooking or training in any of that realm where you're just like, I'm just going all in on this. This is my jam. I'm just going to do this. Or were you like diving into other aspects of like culinary stuff at that point too? Um, I mean, so I've always cooked and mm -hmm. I've, that being said, I've always cooked wild game and animals that we've gotten ourselves, whether mm -hmm. it's abalone, fish, you know, deer, elk, you know, whatever animal it is that we've gone out and, caught or hunted and killed. Um, so I've always, I've always done that. I was really big into meal prep for a long time. Um, not so much anymore. <laughs> uh, and it shows, but, um, I've always, I think it was like 2010. I kind of came to this conclusion. I was watching beef prices rise a whole lot. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to focus on killing animals and feeding myself. And what I found was for myself to be able to do enough flip flops a year for my friends mm -hmm. and also do, uh, enough, what do you call it? Do enough, um, like wild game that I could eat throughout the year. Yeah. And actually, you know, provide for yourself for the rest instead of, of having to buy beef. Sure. I mean, I still buy pork, but, um, uh, what I would, sorry, notifications. Um, what I found was for me, it was about three deer, three mature bucks, three bucks a year. That was going to be able to hold me out through the entire year. And um, for a long time, I lived on the, the Dave Ramsey meal plan, which is like beans, rice, <laughs> and then ground venison. Right. Right. So then when I go to the store, you know, I'd go to Trader Joe's. I'd buy five cans of black beans. I'd buy, you know, a pound of white rice or, or brown rice, whatever kind of rice didn't mm -hmm. fucking matter. And I'd buy like an onion. I'd buy some, some kale and some spinach. Mm -hmm. And then I would just like, it looked like I was eating food out of the matrix. Right. <laughs> right. And I'd just make these bowls that I'd eat two times a day. And then I'd make a bunch of breakfast burritos and freeze them and reheat them. And I, and I'd usually, my, I think my bill every week for groceries was like 25 bucks. It's amazing. And that would feed myself for the week. Um, and that was where I really, for myself, started seeing and yielding the benefits of being a hunter that was actually providing for myself. Totally. Um, cause I was no longer getting beef steaks, you know, and I was no longer getting all this extra product. Um, yeah. and that really, yeah, really helped. And so in that, you know, I'd, I'd start making pot stickers, venison pot stickers, or I'd start making, you know, venison egg rolls or, um, elk lasagna. That was a big hit. Anytime I'd make an elk lasagna, I'd do it for company parties and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I worked for a very liberal company, um, 
and everybody, like the first year I showed up with two elk lasagnas, these people were like, not going to try that. Everybody else would eat it and fall in love with it. Right, and then the right. next year, 25 more people would be like, all right, more. Yep. we're doing it this year. <laughs> yep. We're doing it this year. And then it got to the point where every Christmas party we were doing, I'd bring a wild, you know, a couple wild game dishes and those would disappear before anything else, you know, and this is all people that don't hunt, never right. hunted in their life, never even wanted to hunt, think hunting is a sin. And now here they are eating out of the palm of my hand because it's delicious. Literally. <laughs> Literally <laughs> yeah. eating out of the palm yeah. of your hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So it was, you know, I wouldn't say, I'm not, everybody always likes to say, oh, you're a chef, you're a chef, you're a chef. Right. I'm not a chef, man. I, I like to, I'm more of a camp style cook, you know, like I like I to it. cook my, all my different venison dishes and I've been cooking, you know, or, or duck dishes and mm-hmm. I've been cooking all these dishes my entire life. So I kind of perfected them, you know, it's not like I'm some new guy to the scene that's, you know, coming out claiming some bullshit just so I could sell product. It's not a marketing angle for me. This has been a way of life for decades. And then if you get into like my whole family, it's been a way of life for my family, you know, for, I mean, shit, we first came to America, you know, in the the mid 1600s. So we've been hunting wild game since before this nation was a nation. Um, So cool, man. I mean, and and the tradition and the history part of it is what I think makes it so appealing, like to people, cause they can, they can feel that, you know, like when it's something that it, it's because it's obvious that you care about it, but then <laughs> when, but when you understand why you care about it and it's like, no, this is something that's like, we're talking decades and even at, at some level centuries, right? Like yeah. the specificity yeah. of the flip-flop and the sauce, not necessarily centuries, but it all yeah. started ages ago and so all that's just been filtered down and filtered down and then now it's i mean it's with you right now and so it's like there's some there's some level of almost like responsibility to it at this point as well it seems right we're carrying the message for sure there for me there's a big level of responsibility to it and and for me it's it's not it's not about like making a dollar off a hunter you know and, and trying to have some master manipulative marketing that looks wonderful and sells hunters on shit. Like I, I won't endorse a product that I don't believe in. And and that's something that I've done for a long time. You know, Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of always been my way of life. Like I, I, I'm not a big fan of just good marketing, you know, like sure. Good marketing is great and people fucking crush it and they do a wonderful job. And you know, my marketing to me, I don't, I don't need to market this. This is, this is a tradition and a heritage. This is like passing on a Montana knife company to your, to your, to your kids, mm-hmm. you know, or passing on a Yeti cooler to your kids because the fucking thing still is going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, all of us. <laughs> it's going to out exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and that for me is what I'm doing is I, I'm passing along our family's tradition and our family's history for every family across America in hopes that they pass it to their kids and their kids and their kids. And this is something that when I'm long dead and gone, you know, my grandfather died in 1998 and this is still going and it's resurging and it's, and it's taking over, you know, whitetail hunting and Western hunting. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's his legacy. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. You know, and and to be, again, back to what we were talking about earlier, to be able to see folks from all over the United States doing this, like that's, to me, it's more than just a bottled sauce product. You know, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely important. Like you said, I'm very passionate about it. Well, and that makes me, that makes me wonder too. I mean, in this process of taking a, you know, we, we talked about like, you want to have this thing completely right and and honor it in a way that makes sense for your family. Right. But yeah. So I'm curious because there's always these stories. Was there any opportunities that seemed like it was going to be the thing, but you just had like a bad feeling about how it was going to work out. So you had to kind of say no to it. And in that kind of a situation, because I've, I've heard tons of times where it's like people think they're getting the thing that they want. 
and then it ends up biting him in the butt later because of some weird contractual thing or something like that. So I'm wondering, like, was there ever any instance where somebody offered to like take this from you and be like, Hey, we'll do this or we'll do it how you need to do it. And it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then you say no to it. Yeah. I've had a lot of equity offers. I've had a lot of people that, uh, I remember one, I remember one time I was sitting in my buddy's truck and this is before the sauce. I'd, I'd been developing the sauce with a, with a manufacturer for, two years at that point, but the sauce wasn't ready yet. Mm -hmm. And no one knew that I had been doing this because I'd been doing it all very quietly and just doing what I need to do. And, uh, he was like, man, if there's just a way that I could buy this from you and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And you know, I could turn this into a brand and this and that. And I was like, that was the first time I ever had a conversation with somebody. Well, I might, I actually already have trademark attorneys I actually already have a sauce product in development. Like this is, I have long goals with this. Yeah. You know, this is a serious project and a serious undertaking. And they were just kind of like, Oh shit. (laughs) I had no clue. Um, And, and since then I've had several different people approach me and different people want equity. I mean, everybody wants equity in something that's, changing hearts and minds of people all across America. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I've entertained one or two of them and, you know, I think at the end of the day, like it's just really come down to, for me, there, there hasn't been anyone that's approached me that has a reasonable offer for me to want to give up, right. you know, percentage of my family's history because that's what I'm doing. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And I look at, you know, like the guy who started Lagunitas, um, Lagunitas beer. Yep. And, and I look at what he did and how he developed, you know, and, and he developed in West Marin, he developed the same place where this sauce starts. Um, and he developed the same way that I've started, you know, and and slowly over time, once he grew the business big enough, you know, Heineken came in and, you know, they came out with some deals that worked, you know, very well in his favor and, you know, exploring it and understanding it. He was OK with it and and started going that route. And I don't think that at that point in time where he was with his brand and, and what he had built and made. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think he was losing anything by, by partnering and pairing, pairing with, I I believe it was Heineken. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and getting to watch his success story reminds me a lot of my own success story, um, and where he was and what he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm nowhere near the volume or level that he is at or, or been at. You know, and and I have no idea if that's how large I want to take it. (laughs) Right. You know, but. Yeah. um, So looking back on it in terms of when you decided to make, like when you decided to go all in on it and looking at where you are now, is there anything knowing what's happened since then? Like, it's kind of like the hindsight thing. Is there anything that you would have gone back and maybe changed or done differently to get it to this point? Or is it kind of been like you wouldn't have changed it it's it's been how it was supposed to go the only thing if i look back at it the only thing where i'd be like man i wish i could have done this different sorry i keep Mm -hmm. the only thing i wish i could have done different is uh started it earlier yeah you know like i talked to some buddies that are building their brands and building their companies and they've got a lot more time involved in it and they've been doing it for a lot longer and, and I listen to them and watch their success and what they're doing. And I'm like, man, I wish I was five years in. As with anybody who's being an entrepreneur, though, right. like, you know, I wish I could have started earlier. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, but, but in terms of the actual process, I mean, it's gone how it was supposed to go. Exactly. You know, to get it to this point, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, like, and you've been yeah. able to do it how you want to do it, which well, is. Well, I, I think, too, like if I would have started earlier, I might've taken some of those equity offers that could have been terrible fucking ideas, you know, and, and terrible, uh, 
decisions where I'm much more mature and much more level headed. Totally. Um, I mean, I still live on impulse. I have terrible impulse control, <laughs> but that's more to like what I'm going to hunt, how I'm going to hunt and where I'm going to hunt. Right. Instead of making serious financial and business decisions. Right. Um, but that's more like a personal growth thing. You know, yeah. like you said, I mean, it's, it's, you needed to be this type of person at this time for it to go the way that it did. So, and that it is going, yeah. And that it is going. And so, sure, like it would have been nice to have had it been a decade earlier, but like you were probably a totally different dude a decade oh, yeah. prior where it wouldn't well, have maybe I, even worked out at all. And the whole thing might have tanked if you would have tried it then. You know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. You know, and a lot of it was, you know, has been strategy and, and how I've built myself and what I've done to, to build myself um, prior to actually launching the brand and, Mm -hmm. you know, being very strategic and, 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 and making sure that what I'm doing is the right thing and not the wrong thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, building everything first, building a solid foundation first before launching the brand. Totally. I love it, man. So do you have a, and this is me just being curious of all of the types of animals that you've done the method with, do you have a favorite? I mean, I'm going to say that sheep is always my favorite thing to cook <laughs> because it's rare. It's exotic. Yeah. No yeah. one really ever gets to eat sheep. Usually if you're eating sheep, you're talking about an animal that costed anywhere from a hundred to $300,000 for a hunter to go take. And for them to donate a sheep leg is absolutely, you know, awesome and extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a whole nother thing is like, there's guys that are out doing these hunts that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and they kill epic animals. And one of their thoughts when they kill an epic animal is I'm going to save this entire leg and I'm going to give it to Andy. What? So crazy. Are you kidding? <laughs> so you know, crazy. like that's insane to me. That's completely insane to me. That is, well, and just the, because I talked with, uh, about a month or so ago, I had Robbie from Blood Origins on Uh and just talking about conservation in general, right? And just the misconception about what conservation actually is and like who's actually the most effective conservation group on the planet is hunters, right? Mm -hmm. Hunters and outdoorsmen are the most effective when it comes to actually walking raising funds for sure yeah walking the walk and so yeah well i mean well so that's an interesting conversation to have too you know it's like hunters raise the most money to go back into wildlife right Right. and you know we can always say every hunter everybody that's buying a tag and a license is a conservationist to an extent on the flip side of that though is Who's doing something to actually make an impact, yeah. right? And and most of the times, yes, it's hunters. Yes, it's brands. Yes, it's it's companies, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. 501c3s, nonprofits, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, one of the biggest things that I've seen, though, is a lot of people run NPOs and they pay themselves handsomely and the conservation projects that they're participating in and and getting done they're they're either paying a a fee to be on the label of that they're not actually doing conservation themselves and what really made me start paying attention to that and looking at financials of companies was i used to do a lot of charity and fundraising for veteran charities and and we're going back before social media and yeah and back before all that kind of stuff and then looking at their numbers and seeing what these guys are paying for themselves and, you know, how they're backdooring. Here's this charity that we're doing. But to buy our shirts that we're going to sell for charity, we're buying it through our own private shirt company that we developed, you know. And then they're charging extra money to the 501 that they have just so they're making an extra three bucks a shirt, you know. And and I'm figuratively speaking, but just talking about sure. how yeah. money laundering breaks down in the in the in the and the nonprofit sector, you know, and, and where it bleeds out back into their own pocket. Right. Right. Um, so that's that I'm, I'm a huge skeptic of, of, of nonprofits. I'm a huge skeptic of people that are, are, you know, doing great things in the name of humanity, but somehow they're collecting huge paychecks. <laughs> right. Um, I'm a firm believer in self-sacrifice 
and I'm a firm believer in, in, in running things accordingly. And, um, I, in, in my opinion, you know, I don't, I don't think, and this is just across the board. Fisher House Foundation is one of the most remarkable places that you can look at as far as their financials go. Mm. Um, I mean, last time I looked, I think it's at like one or one and a half percent of all the money that comes into their organization is spent on paying employees and running the company. The other 98% is all going back to veterans, veterans' families, and actually helping and and being sufficient. That's awesome. So so that's kind of how I look at at things. So full circling back to conservation... Um, I think, yes, hunters are the leadest, the leading contributor for financing and, and, and helping the federal government fund wildlife and fund, uh, fish and wildlife departments all across the U S and, and species. But then you like get into a state of California, uh, where they have record number tag sales every year, um, but they, I, it's maybe has changed since I've left the state, but they don't have a bear biologist. They don't have a dedicated bear biologist for the state to actually go out and only look at bears, yeah. you know? So then it's like, all right, cool. We're coming up with all this money. Where's the money being spent? How's the money being spent? Is it going back into the fishery? Is it going back into big game? Which species is it going into? Totally. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a lot bigger of a picture than just we buy a tag, the money goes into the Pittman Robertson act or Robertson Pittman, however you want to say it, you know, and then it's allocated here, there and everywhere and, and what, what the outcome is and all that kind of stuff. So what I really look for in conservation is people that are, are really leading the charge, people that are setting an example, people that are out there in the field, uh, hands-on actually trying to make a difference, um, not only for themselves, but for, the future generation of hunters. What what are people doing that is benefiting hunters 10 years, 20 years? What are they doing to impact a species that's going to preserve that species for the next five generations of hunters down the line? You so, know? yeah. So who are some of the ones right now that you're, that you're big on? Um, I mean, I, uh, the biggest one that I would say that, and I, I've gotten to be, um, uh, a pretty, a pretty, pretty fun part of what they're doing would be Kuyu Conservation Direct and, mm-hmm. and what they've done as far as raising funds, showing what it actually costs to transplant 55 sheep, you yeah. know, and, and uh, hands-on experience, hands-on conservation, um, what they've actually accomplished. Uh, and I've reached out to several different, um, you know, Mule Deer Foundation, you know, California Mule Deer Foundation, um, waterfowl back, you know, years ago when I, when I waterfowl hunted more than I do now, um, uh, wild sheep, mm-hmm. you know, I've reached out to a lot of companies. I've always been willing to go in and help and, and do whatever I can. Yeah. And that's just me. That's just what I can do as a hunter is reach out to these organizations and see if I, you know, if I can get in. I think one of the difficulties for an average person to get into any of those circles is that if you don't have a name for yourself or you're not in the good old boy circle, you have no chance of getting in and you have no chance of helping other than a cash donation. Right. Which can be you know, frustrating and probably dissuades a lot of people from even doing yeah, it. Disheartening for anybody that yeah. wants to get involved in actual hands-on conservation, for sure. Yeah, it can be kind of a frustrating deal to, like you said, I mean, a lot of people that would otherwise want to do it are now like, well, no, I can't. If I can't, if I can't be a part of it, then I can't be a part of it kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. or you look at companies that are like, oh, here, buy our one-year subscription you know, it's 35 bucks. And then where's that 35 bucks going? What's that $35 doing? What, you know, here, make this contribution, make this donation, and then try to follow the financials through their reports because they have to publicly report their financials and see where the money's going and and what they're actually doing to help conservation. 
you know, and, and I'll always circle it back to veteran charities and, and just because I've had such a bad experience with mm-hmm. many veteran charities, um, which I will not call out, but, yeah. um, you know, I circle back to that because it's, it's a very good example and, and it's, it's not just veteran charities. It's, it's, I would probably want to say 90% of nonprofits that are out there, you know, there's, there's weird funneling of money. There's, you know, money's not going to actual conservation. It's not, you know, it's not actually doing, maybe it's making a video, maybe it's talking about the problem, but it's legitimately not doing anything to solve the problems that are happening. And us as hunters, it's our responsibility to weed that out, start calling those organizations out and then start trying to make a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And start trying to lead the way on, on a good model of conservation. Totally. And it's, and it's, it's one of those things where in the States anyways, I mean, we have, I don't think it's even arguable. We've got the, whatever problems are with it anyways, we've still got the best idea of conservation conservation on the planet. Like whether or not the execution of it in a lot of places is what it should be. The model and the concept of it is unlike anywhere else on the planet. And so it's, it's even more of a responsibility to uphold what it should be. I think in that case, which is, you know, it's kind of like what you're saying, like start holding people's, feet to the fire on these things and make sure they're, you know, at the minimum doing what they say they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, not that, like I was saying, man, it, it all comes down to us as hunters holding them accountable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, individual hunters, because until individual hunters can get together and start holding the nonprofits accountable, um, there won't be any changes made. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's a damn shame. Mm-hmm. And to to take it in the direction of some specific, because we talked earlier how much you've just been, I mean, literally all over the world in the last handful of months uh, doing some of these hunts and stuff, because I want to hear about a couple of them, because uh, you've done some pretty rad ones in the last few months when you post these pictures. I'm like, like one week you're up in Alaska, and then it was like, it seemed like Canada, Canada and then it didn't seem like it was that much longer. Maybe it was prior. You're like in the Middle East doing some kind of, or wherever it was back across the oceans, doing some other hunts over there. So like, where did all those come from? Like, which ones were you doing and and what were those experiences like? Um, So the first one was a mid-Asian Ibex hunt. Yeah. And that has been a bucket list hunt for me for a long time. And a good buddy of mine, Lucas Paw, he runs a podcast called Rod and Arrow Outdoors. Um, The dude is a beast. Like, Lucas is probably one of the most phenomenal hunters I've ever spent time in the field with, mm-hmm. uh, almost on any level. I mean, he's an exceptional athlete. He crushes mountains harder than, than most people I've ever seen mm-hmm. out on a hunt, you know, and like verified legitimate at 13,000 feet elevation. Like the dude crushes fucking mountains the same way the Sherpas were crushing the mountains is ridiculous. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, but Lucas kind of organized that whole hunt and, and, uh, you know, asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And I said, absolutely. Excuse me. And, uh, that was kind of, for me, how I got involved in going to Kyrgyzstan, the entire experience, um, was bananas start to finish. I mean, Lucas was almost stranded and stuck in Canada and wasn't going to be able to make the hunt. I was almost stranded and stuck in New Orleans because of Hurricane Ida and almost wasn't going to be able to make the hunt. Uh, We both ended up making the hunt and and getting to LAX on time to make our flight. Uh, We're putting together a phenomenal video um, that will, you know, highlight and show that experience. Um, It should be coming out here, I think, in the beginning of February, the end of January. Um, and we, so I rolled out of that hunt, came home, went and did a cook in, uh, the Carolinas for clean eats, 
then came back to New Orleans, picked up my girlfriend. We loaded a U-Haul. She moved up here and moved in with me in Montana. And then rolled out of that straight down to California. Hunted deer in California for 10 days. Uh, took my buddy out. And we ended up getting him his first bear of his life. He was ecstatic about it. Um, and then rolled out of that. And I got a phone call on my way home, on our way home back to Montana. And on that drive, got a phone call about a moose hunt in Canada. And that was, I think, on like a Thursday or a Friday. And booked the flight and was on the flight the following Monday to Canada to go on this moose hunt with my dad. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and that was something that I'd always wanted to do with my dad. And, and you know, my dad's 71 years old. Um so to have that opportunity and get to spend that time with him, you know, was just, you know, it's absolutely unreal. Uh, then came back and started my hunting in Montana and saw plenty of elk I could have shot, you know, saw some decent bulls, saw some, you know, saw a ton of cows. And there was just never an animal that I was like, yeah, I'm going to kill that one, you know, right. You know, I'm, I don't want to call myself a trophy hunter, but I am a mature animal. I would say more yeah. so these days I've gravitated to hunting a more mature animal and, and spectacle of the species mm -hmm. and never found one that that was the animal that I wanted to, to go out and kill. And um, so elk season came and went and, you know, it was kind of dismal. We didn't have the weather that we were anticipating or that you'd hope for and you know, public hunting pressure is extremely high. It's, so I just never really found yeah. a place where, you know, or found the bull I was looking for. Uh, ended up getting an opportunity to go with a buddy and uh, hunt some whitetail with, with him and on uh, his father's property and went out and did that and, you know, got an absolute amazing whitetail for my first whitetails, first whitetail deer. I've, I've, hunted whitetail for the last four years and every year that i go to hunt for a whitetail i end up killing a mule deer <laughs> uh, because i just find an amazing buck and i'm right. like that's the one i want to kill that's so I'm gonna kill, you know and i'm not going to hold out for a whitetail so it was really nice to get that under my belt and that's awesome 60 doing that uh it's the first year in 12 years that i haven't killed a deer in california wow uh, I, I passed on a few bucks in California. Just never, there's never a buck that I came across. Uh, usually I have about 45 to 50 days of field time in California. And this year I had eight days of field time in California. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's the difference, right? Yeah, that's the totally. difference that the time in the field makes. There was, there's plenty of opportunity, just nothing that I wanted to kill. Yeah. Um, and I'm fine with that. I've, no problem saying that I didn't tag out for California this year. Um, and yeah, that was, that was pretty much the extent of my hunting season this year. And just all over the place, which is cool. Uh, but I've, I'm, I've been all over the place probably since 2016. Yeah. Just um, a rambling man. Yeah. Just <laughs> living out of my truck mostly. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I want to just kind of begin to like close things out a bit. Like what, as far as uh, maybe events or just anything you're kind of pumped about that's coming up, like what's coming up in the immediate or semi long term or whatever you've got that's kind of you're pumped about. What's going on? Um, what am I pumped about that's coming up? <laughs> we got winter strong. I was just gonna up. say I'm gonna see you in like a month. Well, I'm pumped about yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not almost. Yeah, just just about a month. Um, uh, a UFC cook that's coming up, where I'm gonna oh, cook nice. for a bunch of the UFC crew. Nice. Um, uh sheep shows coming up and i'm auctioning off uh i'll show up to the highest bidder's house and do a private party for them and 25 of their friends that's awesome and, and cook a rocky mountain sheep leg pretty excited about that one that's cool um got some i, I there's a lot of cooks that are coming yeah. up that i'm just extremely ecstatic about i just don't like actually saying who they're with and, and what I'm doing. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> they're not public yeah, events, like, so don't worry about I it. Like, <laughs> I like the surprise. I like the surprise. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, I used to be really big on always posting what's coming up and then uh, it was disheartening to watch people steal my ideas and, you know, steal, steal what I was, not necessarily what I was doing, but the general conception of what I was doing right. and then market it as their own material. Uh, so that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth to where like, ah, I'll just do it. And when I show up and it's happening, that's when you'll find out. And yeah. Well, good, man. Um, well, I'm pumped to hang out in a little, in a few weeks here and yeah. get We're going to have a great time, man. It's going to be fun. I'm pumped. And uh, where is the, where people can get sauce, where people can get the legs that you're selling, like do all that stuff so people can go support you. So on social media, you can just find us at, at the flip flop guy. And if you're interested in buying sauce or buying a leg or learning more about our company and our story, you can go to our website and our website is www.theflipflopguy.co. Uh, working on obtaining the .com right now. Some dude holding out because he wants money from you for it. <laughs> yeah, some dude actually, when I first started, wanted $15,000 for the .com and I told him to go fuck himself. Um, and I, I actually just a week ago acquired the flipflopguy.com for twelve ninety nine. So, that's awesome <laughs> yeah i was pretty excited for that fuck that guy he's a piece of shit <laughs> oh that's funny well thank so you it'll be rolling into the dot com relatively soon perfect well thank you andy man i'm glad we were able to get this done and and i'm pumped to see you in a few weeks man so thank you again yeah thank you for having me on man i appreciate it yeah 